All right. Well, this is our Friday Q&A. Welcome to the Friday Q&A. Um, I am Pastor Mike Winger, and I'm just a... Uh, in fact, let me take a moment to deflate myself <laughs> before you <laughs> um, appropriately. Um, I do a, a weekly... This is the background, a little bit of what I do. You know, because I do... Fridays, I answer your guys' questions, um, trying to give you the best answers I can. Um, not because I know the most about the Bible, but because I have spent my life trying to understand it better trying to apply it better, trying to pastorally help others with it. And so drawing you know, from that and depending on the Lord, I try to answer your guys' questions to the best of my ability, just being honest, saying I don't know um, more often than I'd like, but that's the reality. But because this online ministry has grown to be so, uh, in my mind, huge, I mean, this is, I mean, not big giant compared to maybe some other giant YouTube channels or something like that, but to me, it's just massive. And the ability to reach so many people is just blows my mind every day, um, all the time. But because of all this, people start to estimate me highly, <laughs> too highly, more, you know, like, for instance, I teach a Sunday night service. Here's a practical example for you. I teach a Sunday night service at my church every Sunday um, at 5 p.m. This is I've been doing this for years now. Um, this is a supplementary service. It's, I'm not the senior pastor of my church. I never have been. I'm the, I was the youth pastor for many years. Started doing other things in ministry as well, a bunch of other things, like long list. But, but when I started doing a Sunday evening service, I had permission, Mike, teach whatever you want there, right? I'm not just teaching teens where I need to go through sort of material that's very applicable to teenagers. I could teach anything I wanted. So I started covering topics that were related to everything I thought was important and sometimes undertaught. In churches, and so I started teaching that sort of thing: um, how to understand the Old Testament law, what does the Bible teach about the conscience, a, a four-part series on the topic of homosexuality, doing you know deep research, evidence for the Bible, Jesus in the Old Testament, all Romans, but more theologically focused than what we often see. So that sort of thing I started doing. But what people don't realize is that Sunday night service has historically been like twelve to fifteen people that I will teach on Sunday night, you know to maybe 12 people, sometimes as many as like four people would come. Other times it would be much larger. And I'm happy to do it. Absolutely worth doing. But then I, we started putting this stuff online. And online it started growing and growing and growing and finding these these sort of Christians that were starving for more thorough teaching and more deep studies. Um, not just encouraging content without the substance, but the, the, with, God willing, so much substance that you can't help but be encouraged. That's There's, there's my strategy. Um, but still, if you come and visit our Sunday night service, if you come to my evening service in, in Bellflower, California, you're going to find that I've I've still got like 12 regulars. But yet it, we will have sometimes as many as 20 first-time visitors <laughs> that come just to say, oh, I just wanted to check it out. And they're always surprised that it's such a small study. And part of me says... You know, I don't I don't measure my my ministry success by my numbers. Um, I just measure the reach. Right? Numbers just tells you the reach of your ministry. It doesn't tell you the success of your ministry. And so the success is the is the ministry impact in people's lives. And I think that that is 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 evident. And I, God willing, I think it's there. But my point is this: is to encourage those of you who like me for years and years and years, you've been serving faithfully a small number of people, right? The youth ministry was larger than my Sunday night gathering, but still relatively small compared to like some giant mega church out there. I've never been part of a mega church, at least not, well, I guess for a couple of years I was back there, but, um, but no, not in the past 20 years. <laughs> I haven't. And I, um, I don't think it matters. Like if you're serving and you're in obscurity, 
or at least relative obscurity. And you're just faithfully ministering to a smaller group of people and you don't see the big earth-shaking effect of your ministry. Like, so serve the Lord and take joy in what you're doing and be faithful in it because faithfulness itself is immeasurably valuable. And it is the thing that Jesus measures us by, right? He who's faithful in, in, in few things, little things will be faithful in much or many. So just my encouragement to you is that um, online, I'm reaching a ridiculous number of people that just blows my mind. In, in you know, Sunday services, you would still come and think, oh, this is a pretty small gathering. <laughs> and, it's, and guess what? It's still worth doing. So that's just some encouragement for those who might be serving the Lord and you feel like your ministry is too small, your impact is too little, um, your, what you're doing is not significant enough. I, I just think you're, you're measuring things wrongly. Jesus says, if you give a cup of water to, uh, to, to one of his children, you won't lose your reward. He deliberately chose something that was really small, like you're the water boy of the church and you're not going to lose your reward. You're, you're All you do is the tiniest, littlest things like, oh, I just, I just clean so the saints can have a nice place to gather when they come and meet, you know, or all I do is fold the bulletins and put them together and get things like, these are all wonderful things you get to do for Christ and we should not get easily discouraged. All right, let's go to our first question today. Um, Christian Galindo says, hello, Pastor Mike, would like to ask you, what are your thoughts about Hillsong? Are they a progressive Christian church? Is their theology sound? It would be really helpful to hear your thoughts. So Christian, let me say this. I, I'm going to be, um, more and more, the longer I do these things, the more I, I, I do want to be open in my answers because I, I realize how many people are struggling with these kinds of questions. But because I'm going to be open with my answers, I have to also be open about the limitations of my answers. So my, my limitation here is I haven't really studied into Hillsong and their theology. I looked a long time ago. There was this whole uh, Chrislam claim against um, uh, Brian Houston. And the, the idea was that he was teaching that, that you know, uh, some sort of, this is what I heard, a merging of Christianity and Islam, that he was trying to push these two religions together. And as I tried to find the quotes of what he had said and I listened to them in context, I went... I think he made mistakes. I think he shouldn't have said that, but I don't think we should blow it up into him merging. So what we can do is we can take issues and errors that we see in churches and we can turn them into conspiratorial agendas. Just because a pastor said something wrong doesn't mean it's an agenda. Now it might be, it could be that it's actually an agenda. I don't have the vibe that it's an agenda, right? That, that and, and you didn't ask this, about this. I'm just telling you what launched me into looking into them originally. Um, that, that Christianity and Islam are being merged into some sort of weird, um, you know, apostate religion. Um, I Now, and we know, okay, perhaps these things will happen one day in the future, but that doesn't mean that that's what their agenda is. And I don't think that's what their agenda is. Uh, what are my thoughts on Hillsong? My thoughts on Hillsong, in brief, are that they have um, started off by producing uh, large amounts of music that became very popular. Music when it draws tons of attention and gives you lots of name recognition, it helps you expand your borders of, of the rest of your ministry stuff. This is what um, Bethel is doing with, with Jesus culture music, right? The, the Bethel songs, the, the Bethel music, actually now Bethel is its own label, right? So they get a lot of name recognition. It does help them to then plant more churches and have larger influence in other groups. That influence is, is a bit concerning. Um, Hillsong seems to me... <clears throat> like a mixed bag because, and I'm speaking here as, as an observer, but because they're having worldwide influence, why can't we talk about it, right? Um, it seems like a mixed bag because it seems like what they've done is they've sort of tried to can and package Christianity in a way that has a lot of extra baggage 
in a lot of special ways of being presented that aren't necessarily biblical. So let me give you an example. Um, Hillsong leadership tends to be incredibly positive and promising wonderful things a lot of the time. But a lot of the things they promise, now there are great promises in the New Testament for us, but they, they generally relate to our, our, our relationship with God and our future promises. Even though right now, often there's warnings about persecution, suffering, taking up your cross, um, you know, basically losing things for Christ, that these are, the, there's more warnings than nice promises about, about current pleasurable experiences. Uh, but Hillsong seems to lean towards not only having those wonderful promises, but adding more and more and more extra ones so that it becomes such a positive message that it's well-received by non-believers. And I think that that's one of the keys, right? It's not that the gospel's not there. It's that there's a there's a overarching primary message is a positive message. And that positive message is so encouraging that everybody likes it, whether they agree with it or not, whether they believe it or not, they enjoy it. That guy's just so positive. How can you not like him? Right. Um, so I, I think that that has been part of what's caused their explosive growth has been the addition of this extra layer on top of Christianity of intense positivity. The danger of that is that we then we have to minimize certain aspects of Christianity that aren't very positive to non-Christians. So those those aspects aren't necessarily gone because when in times they'll sometimes still teach those things, but they're de-emphasized because this doesn't help the movement. This doesn't help the, the packaging, right? When Let me give you an example. When McDonald's was selling hamburgers and fries to little kids, they were just selling burgers and fries to little kids. When they came up with the idea to do a happy meal, happy meal, first off, brilliantly named, right, for kids, and it has a little toy in it. You don't know which toy you're going to get. The, the real reason why kids go for this meal is the toy, not the food, right? I'm excited to go to McDonald's because I get to have this toy. What I'm suggesting is that in some ways, what Hillsong has done is there's still the, the, the meat and, and, and potatoes that's there, like the burger and fries, is still there. Like I think the gospel's intact, as far as I know, just giving my opinion here. But the emphasis is the toy, is the happy part. And that emphasis can can create a lot of confusion and problems. Yet, because they're so successful, other Christian ministries will look at them like they're the example to follow because they're judging. They're, they're, see, they're not, what I just mentioned earlier, they're not saying numbers equals reach. What they're saying is numbers equals success, right? Numbers just equals reach. The question is, what am I reaching them with? That is where success or failure or some mixture of the two is going to be measured. And ultimately, the Lord's going to measure that on the day we stand before him. So there's a couple of concerns about Hillsong. Um, you said, are they progress a progressive church? I don't think they are yet. Could they be? Possibly. I think that they tend, see, progressives tend to push very specific agendas. And I think that, um, <clears throat> I look at it like this, like Hillsong is very much like, we want a giant umbrella. We want to embrace everybody. Everyone's happy. Everybody's here. Everybody's part of the club. And progressives tend to have a target to destroy traditional Christianity. And so Hillsong would not probably partner with that because it's so negative and they're, they're just not trying to be negative. So guys like Hillsong or Bethel, these groups are not going to want to target traditional Christianity for like with, with the long guns to take it out. Whereas progressives, that's usually what binds them together is the thing they're trying to tear apart. At least that's my observation on progressives. Um, it doesn't mean every progressive is like that. Um, and it, we're, here we're talking progressives um, uh, theologically. If you're used to the term progressive in a political context, we're really using that term in a very different fashion. When I say progressives, I don't mean Democrats here. Um, I'm talking, although many are 
That's fine. There's overlap often between the two, but that's not what I'm talking about. All right, we're going to question number two. Jesper Dahl says, is it okay for Christians? Uh, oh, let me, sorry. Let me say this last thing on the Hillsong thing. Um, <clears throat> I consider them my brothers and sisters in Christ. Even if I see a leader, same as Bethel, even if I see a leader that I think is, whoa, that leader's way off, that doesn't mean that the whole congregation is also the same as the leader. People are unique. And because they still have a text that I have, the Bible, because they still have the, as far as I can tell, the gospel of Christ intact, even if it's been de-emphasized in a, in, a, in a sad and potentially scary way, I still think these are my brothers and sisters. There's some things going on there that just aren't, aren't that healthy. But watch out that you don't criticize Hillsong because they have big numbers, right? You, you actually start to hate churches because they're big. Like, oh, they're big? They have how many people? Oh, they're obviously apostate obviously apostate. Honestly, what's happening here is something weird in my heart when I do that. There's nothing wrong with the big church. I'm excited that there are big churches. I sure hope they have substance. <laughs> I sure hope they do. And some of them do. And some of them don't. And many of them are just a mixed bag. Uh, I guess I look at Hillsong as being a mixed bag. Although over the years, they seem like they're drifting more and more um, towards the what what makes people buy the product, the happy part. There's my thoughts. I have hope for them that they might come back around to be stronger in theology, to be better and more accurate and more solid because they still have that foundation, I believe. And so my hope is, is that, and my hope is that more leaders will rise up in that movement who will hold people fast to biblical teaching, who will bring the gospel and doctrine and, and a real challenge to live for Christ, die to self, and an unashamed, an unashamed attitude towards the things in the gospel that are, are offensive to the world, the things that make people not want the Happy Meal. That's my hope. All right. Jesper Dahl has a question. Is it okay for Christians to have icons in their home? Um, so when you say icons, I'm thinking that you mean specifically like Catholic symbols where it's like a priest. Uh, I'm sorry, a priest, a, a saint, um, a, some saint of old. And it's like a, a Catholic, like a, it's like a little statue or it's, a, it's like a, say, a silver brooch type thing that has like the person's face on it. And. And I would think that generally speaking, this is a bad idea for Christians because there's baggage associated with that. Now, let me let me back up and say it this way. There's nothing wrong with having just an image in your home. Um, images are not inherently wrong. I used to think they were. I, I read Exodus when I was really just first reading the Bible and it says like not to make a graven image. And I, and I just took that as a command by itself. Like don't make any images of anything. And this created anxiety in me because I was just like, well, like, I have toys, right? Like I have like um, battle beasts when I was very young. <laughs> and I got these little battle beasts. They're these little like monsters, little tiny plastic figures, you know? And I'm like, well, is that a graven image? Is that wrong? And obviously I was mistaken. Um, you can prove this in scripture. It says not to make a graven image, but it also goes on to say the whole command is don't make a graven image and, and bow down to it. Don't worship it. Don't worship any graven image. And this is part of an overall command where God's telling them, you will not make anything to represent me. There'll be nothing that represents me and no worship will, going to, will be going to objects. Romans 1 encourages us in this, in that this is not just for the law or something. This is for all people in that the major flaw of mankind is that he rejects God and then he begins worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So anytime I have an image that's not just an image, but it's an image that becomes part of my worship and I'm directing prayers at this image, I think that this thing is protecting me. That that sort of thing is problematic. But that doesn't mean all images are wrong because look at the temple. In the temple, you have in the, the centerpiece, not only were there angels on the tapestry in the temple, 
But there was also the centerpiece, which was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, you have two angels with, with long wings. So here we have involved in our in the worship, or the worship of Israel, you have these, these beings. But the important thing is that those beings were never worshipped. The worship was never directed at them. They were not seen as those giving access to God. They were not seen as those who were going to pray to them and then they're going to ask God stuff for us. We That was never going on there. Rather, these angels were to demonstrate that we're talking about that you're entering the heavenly realm, right? The, the center of the temple was like heaven. It was like entering into the, into the throne of God. But in the middle of the angels, between the angels, there's just an empty space. Empty space. And this was unique for Israel, unlike the world, the world around them. They worshipped and there's an empty space at the, at the center of their worship. Why? Because that's where God's very glory was. That's where God actually, his glory entered and, and, and dwelt in the temple. And they were worshiping God directly. So with all that in mind, is it okay to have like uh, um, a Power Ranger? Sure. Is it okay to have Battle Beasts? Sure. Is it okay to have a Pokemon? Sure. I don't have a problem with any of those things. Is it okay to have a Catholic saint? Okay, well... Probably not, right? Let, let's just be very pragmatic, like real life here. The function of that saint icon is not the function of those other entertainment or art, art, artistry type icons or images. The function of the saint in practical Catholic living, we're talking about normal Catholics here, is a superstitious protection function. You know, there's there are those, even in my area, I live in Southern California, so we've, uh, we've got a, a very large Hispanic community here and, and that's where a lot of the Catholicism that we see regularly is is um, focused. And there'll be the burial of actual saint images into the front yard of a person. There will be, you know, you, 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 you've lost something. You're going to pray to the, the patron saint of lost items. And you're going to, you know, grab that and you're going to talk to him. And all that is very scary and very problematic and very un, unbiblical. So, yeah, we don't. So for, for that, my short answer is, yeah, don't do it. <laughs> um, don't do it. The, there's, there's even a danger in this. Like, let's say that in your church, there's, there's this cross on the wall. And as you're worshiping, there's a cross up there on the wall. But you find yourself drawn in worship. You start directing your worship like at, at the cross, as though that thing actually is where you're accessing Jesus or something. That's a problem too. Like, we must keep the space where our worship is directed empty of all things other than actually God. That's that's the lesson of the temple. The space where my worship goes, where my prayer goes, it's empty of all things but God. So anything that's entering into that place, like if, if even if you have like a Bible and you're like praying and you're like, you, you're going to hold the Bible and you're going to touch it while you pray as though that's giving you some access to God. I'm going to suggest that you set that aside and you remember that it is God who you worship directly without any inner, any mediary other than Jesus Christ, right? This is it. So there's my thoughts. I hope that you find it very helpful. Next question is from Joel Holmberg, who says, Hi, Mike. Did the apostles speak a language everyone understood in Acts 2? Or did each one speak one of the foreign languages? Any thoughts? Also, why exactly did some mock them? God bless. Okay, Acts 2. Let's look at the passage. It will answer this question for us. This is the giving of the Holy Spirit in the, into the church corporately. And the people spontaneously, the believers spontaneously begin speaking in tongues. And it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage. It's often misused. This is very frequently misused, this passage. Your question is going to be, and I'll probably answer a couple other questions while we're there. Um, did they speak a language everyone understood or did each one speak one of the foreign languages? So was it a variety of languages or were they all speaking the same thing? 
Um, I'll answer a couple other things while we're here. Why not? May as well. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. The, the day of Pentecost, we're looking at like 40 days after the resurrection of Christ approximately. Um, so it's it's just after Jesus' death, his resurrection, 50 days, and his ascension, which was 40 days later. 10 days later, there they are gathered, and now the Holy Spirit comes. Because in Acts 1, he told them, wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes. Well, here it is. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. That's going to be the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And divided tongues, th these are like flames. That's the idea. They're like flames. As of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Uh, they probably didn't have the right words to describe what it looked like. So it just says, as of fire, like it looked kind of like fire, uh, and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterances. So utterance. So other tongues would be plural. So they're speaking in other languages. So tongue, glossalia, this is like the, the this is, you know, languages. It's, it's a word we use, we say tongue, we mean languages. We don't do this as often in modern English, but there it is. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Note, note they're from everywhere. And as a sound came, the multitude came together and they, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So they're from every nation and they're hearing people speak in their own language, each, but not one language, each one is hearing. So there's lots of languages going on. Verse seven, and they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, the Galileans, uh, they may have known Greek and, and Aramaic. You know, they might have known that, but they probably didn't know a bunch of other languages. They didn't know these languages. Look, at, now there's a list. Look at how many languages are given here. Um, this is uh, Joel. Look at how many languages are given here. And how is it that we're here, each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In other words, lots of languages. So you have to remember in Jerusalem at, at Passover and Pentecost was the most packed like tourist season in Jerusalem. They're gathered together for the feasts of Israel. These people were gathered. They were from all over the kingdom. They were Jews from all over the place and converts to Judaism who wanted to travel. And they're hearing from, from this, they're hearing the gospel. This actually is one of the best evangelical missionary moments in the book of Acts because they didn't just go out and preach the gospel to other places. They had people from other places gathered and now they all hear the gospel. Then they're going to go home and get to share it with others. So this is through God's brilliance, just the brilliance of God. He, he makes the people of Israel gather together on these feast days. The result of making them gather on Passover and Pentecost is on Passover, people from Israel, uh, people who were descendants of Israel, but from all over the, 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 the known world, they're gathering together and they can witness the crucifixion and then the subsequent testimonies of the resurrection. Then they're gathered as well for Pentecost where they can hear the gospel preached and see the confirmation of it. Do you see that God was just making sure that everyone got to hear the, to the Jew first, that everybody um, of, the, of the Jews got to hear and then they were able to carry it to others. Really brilliant. If it wasn't for this, I wonder how quickly the church would have grown. Verse uh, 12 and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, they're filled with new wine. And here I just want to pause. There are some who want to use Acts 2 to suggest that it's okay to act drunk 
in the spirit. That's actually a phrase people use. You're drunk in the spirit. And they go to Acts 2 every time it seems. Well, it, well, they looked drunk when they, when they were in Acts 2. Actually, scripture doesn't say that. Just slow down. Slow your roll. <laughs> scripture doesn't say that they looked drunk. It says that people mocked them saying, oh, they're just, they're just babbling. They're filled with new wine. Now, who would mock them and think this? Well, what about those who don't know those languages? Because to, to you, a foreign language just sounds like blah, 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 blah. You can't understand what they're saying. And they're mocking them. But the reason they mock them is because they're speaking a language they don't understand. And they don't believe in what God's doing. So they mock them. This is not part of some biblical case that when you're filled with the Spirit, you act drunk. If, you, if you're part of a church where they act, like in Acts 2, Peter was like, Hey, um, Dios... Te ama y tiene un plan para su vida, right? That's like the only Spanish thing I know, right? And if you're thinking that he was like, like swaying around all drunk, acting and stuff like that, and that justifies um, a strange recent church practice that some places do, then you're just abusing scripture. So at any rate, there's, there's a little bonus thing for you because it does come up a lot. Uh, let's look at Tyler Hoskins. Um, Tyler Hoskins says, hello, Pastor Mike. Can you tell me your thoughts slash insights about missionary Spencer Smith? He's a fundamental Southern Baptist whose ministry seems more a witch hunt than the gospel. Thanks. So I've seen um, Spencer Smith on YouTube. I, I've only seen a couple of his videos. And the couple of videos I saw, he was rightly criticizing some pretty wacky things that are going on. But that's it. I have like a my my... my databases two videos i think one was i think they might have both been about kenneth copeland and kind of when anybody's talking about problems with kenneth copeland i usually agree <laughs> so so i'm not surprised there uh, other than that i don't know and I, I wouldn't venture to guess um if 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 there are problems that are there my encouragement to you let's suppose spencer smith has issues i'm not saying he does because i have no evidence one way or the other then i would say that the rest of us should be encouraging him and trying to help him let's not become the witch hunter witch hunters right because if the issue here is division when we see people who, who are divisive like that online with voices we might think well they're now reaching to a larger audience than they ever have before maybe now is a good time for them to realize that the church is, is bigger than their particular denomination their particular gathering and so if we reach out to them with grace and we reach out to them with with open arms and we try to Stand firm in the gospel with them, reject things that must be rejected, but just try to, you know, demonstrate a gracious attitude um, about secondary issues, that kind of thing, then maybe we can see people have changes. Now, I'm not saying Spencer Smith needs those changes. I just don't know. So I'm sorry I can't speak uh, in detail on him. All right. A.D. Chan says, can a spiritual gift be taught? I am of the mind that no spiritual gift can be taught simply because a gift is, by definition, free to the recipient. The gift costs nothing. Um, so to give nuance here, I'm going to say a spiritual gift cannot be taught. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn how to use it better. Um, so Paul writes to Timothy to not neglect his gift. Um Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that they should be eager to prophesy, that they should be like effectively asking for God to help them to focus on prophecy and not just these other gifts that are more like um, comp competitive in nature, at least the way that they were doing it. 
So what I would suggest is this, the, the gifts are initially given as the spirit wills. That doesn't mean the person can't grow in their expression of those gifts. But this opens a can of worms, okay? I'm going to affirm that, and I'm going to agree with that. And I think that's biblical. I think we have scriptural, like I'm trying to let, right? This is our goal is to think biblically about everything. And, and so I have these, sometimes what scripture gives us is these boundaries. Like you can't cross this boundary in your understanding of the gifts. It has to be initiated by the spirit. The spirit, he gives us gifts as he wills. So I can't just look at you and go, I'm going to teach you how to prophesy. Well, but what if you don't have that gift? Like I can't give you gifts the spirit does. Um, but then the other boundary is... Um, Yet there are those who seem to be growing in their use of the gifts in some fashion in scripture. So Paul encouraging Timothy to stir up the gift that is in, in him through the laying on of hands by the eldership. He's a stir it up. You can stir up your gifts. So there's some sort of growth that can happen if the gift has already been given. Now here's my concern. I'm very much concerned about those who try to turn this into a system, right? Like now we're going to have a school where you go through class one, class two, class three. By the end of class three, you're going to be at like level six of prophet, a prophetic anointing. Um, I think that strikes us as weird because it is weird because giftings are organic. They're by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And even if being around other believers might help you grow in them, talking to other believers who are gifted in similar ways may help you. As soon as it becomes a, a systematic thing, it seems like it always gets weird, in my opinion. Um, now, some would appeal to the Old Testament where it talks about the school of the prophets. In the Old Testament, we read about Elijah. I think it was Elijah who references uh, the school of the prophets. I could be wrong about who it was. So there was actually like a school of the prophets. But this is this is this is what's called anachronism. So if I go to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, which I would highly encourage you all to not go to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, uh, does I, I consider them believers. I look at them as my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I see serious issues that are harmful to the body and will, will over the next generation, will show its, its, its bad fruit um, as, as it causes people to fall away and things like that. Sadly, I think that's what's going to happen. So it makes me sad. So I wouldn't go to that. Um, but... They will sometimes say, well, we have a, a school that teaches prophetic ministry. That's just like Elijah he, or, you know, in the Old Testament, they had school, the school of the prophets. Um, probably not. Probably the school of the prophets was about people like doing other things like studying or learning what the prophets had taught and trying to communicate those things to other people. That's, that's possible. Um, it may not have been a school school like you're thinking anyways. Let's just put it this way. Whatever it was, there's enough gray area and not known in there that you cannot take like say Bethel school of supernatural ministry and be like, that's what they had in the old Testament. It was just like what we do, you know? And, um, that's called anachronism and it's just hooking on a phrase school of the prophets and then just filling the blank with whatever you want from today and not trying to understand it in its context, I think. So let's look at the next question. This is from James W. James W says, I'm struggling to find a good response to Leviticus 25 verses 44 through 46 in terms of the Bible endorsing slavery. What are your thoughts on this passage? Let's look at the passage together and I'll share anything I can that might be helpful for you. Okay, here we are. It says, as for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land and they may be your property. I think that, okay, so when it comes to this, but this, gosh, 2020 is the worst year to talk about this kind of stuff. People are, I guess it's 2021 now, which is getting worse. So <laughs> um, people are more triggered by terms and words 
right? This is again a, a case of anachronism. Um, just like a someone who's been to say Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, they they think School of Prophets means what we do. And then they read in the Old Testament where it says has the phrase School of the Prophets and they think, oh, what we do is what they were doing. We're recapturing some old biblical thing. There, there is a consciousness in the mind of, of the world today of what's called chattel slavery. And one of the defining elements of chattel slavery is the utter lack of human rights that a slave would have. And they're basically just, and, and catch the word just, just property. They're just property. So when you read the word property, you think, oh, the chattel slavery we, we, we hate today is the same as what Leviticus is teaching there. So when you look at the Bible, if you want to understand its teaching on slavery, then you have to look at the entire text and not just look for a key word like property. The, um, the nature of the term property here, it does mean there's like a sense of, um, uh, well, you can pass them on. You can bequeath them to your sons after you as an inheritance and a possession. That's what it says. Slavery was not outlawed in the Old Testament, not entirely. But can I can I say this for those who who care? Okay, there are those who are already angry and they're already commenting. <laughs> for those who care, what like an actual historical analysis of the Old Testament to know what the Bible really teaches on the topic? I do have videos where I've dealt with this in detail. I go through a survey of of the Old Testament teaching on slavery. You may not be familiar with it. If if my mods could put that in the chat, I'll put it in the video description as well. My teaching on the topic of slavery in the Old Testament. Here's what I want to do to break the stereotype, the anachronism of thinking chattel slavery is in the Old Testament. What I do is I go through a survey of all the rules about slaves in the Old Testament, and then I show that that's completely incompatible with what you think of as chattel slavery. For instance, um, there is this, we'll come back to this in a minute, but there's a rule in Israel in the Old Testament that you have to love even the strangers, the sojourners, and the slaves. You have to love them. Okay, is that, like this is a command. If we're going to take the Bible seriously, we've got to take these commands seriously. Is that, a, is that consistent with chattel slavery? You have to love them? Okay, well then, so then, wait, it's a, the Bible's allowing slavery, but it's taking steps in the Old Testament. It's taking steps to disabuse it of the harm. Okay, there's more. In the Old Testament, in um, Deuteronomy, there's a teaching, I believe it's Deuteronomy, there's a teaching that, Anywhere in Israel, any city in Israel is effect effectively an underground railroad sanctuary city. So if a slave comes to you from some other place, I'll come back to Leviticus in a minute. If a slave comes to you from another city in Israel or from even outside of Israel and they run to you and they say, I've run from my master. Now in the Old Testament, like Code of Hammurabi, all the other, you know, you know, ancient Eastern areas, if you're there, you you have to give that slave back to the master or you are in trouble, right? Like you could be given, you know, pain and suffering if you don't return that slave to the master. But in the, in the law of Israel, if a slave comes and runs to you, it says you cannot return him to his master. You actually have to not only allow him to come to you, you have to give him a place to live in your area. And it has to be like a decent place. It can't just be like the scummiest place to live. So wait, if a slave comes to me, I have to protect him and provide for him? Yeah, that's in the law. That's in the law. So if we're going to take the laws of slavery. We have to take all of them and understand how they impacted the ancient Near East culture that they're in. Another one is that if, if a slave goes free, you can't just set them free. You have to give them tons of provisions and basically money and packing, traveling money, that kind of thing. So they would go out well provided for because one of the dangers for someone who is in slavery is they go, they go free, but now they have nothing. They've got no job and they have no money and they've only got the clothes on their back. 
And so you had to send them away with great benefits. Another law in Israel is that if you kill a slave, if you're responsible, directly responsible for their death, you get the death penalty. Now, and, and that's how I understand that. I have spent time looking up like the Hebrew word nakam and all that in that passage. And I talk about it in my video on slavery. But we must remember this, like the teaching on slavery is, okay, you have an underground railroad. You, If you are abusive, especially to the point of killing a slave, then you actually get the death penalty. Now, this was not the case in other places. You kill a slave, you kill a slave, they're your slave, they're your property, they're just property. So when the Bible says the word property here, it doesn't mean what we anachronistically mean when we say, oh, because we, we effectively think all slavery is chattel slavery, um, all sort of like contractual obligations between human beings in the ancient Near East are chattel slavery. And this is just a great deal of ignorance about history and a, a sore spot in the most embarrassing thing in our nation's history. Well, next to abortion, that should be the most embarrassing thing of all. So what is, uh, what is it saying here in this passage? All that in mind. Um, what, what God is doing is he's telling them that while they can do this, these, these, these exchanges, these, and you might call it indentured servitude, like that would be appropriate. In fact, translators debate whether they should even use the word slaves for these types of things. Um, at any rate, they can then bequeath them to their sons after them uh, to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, and this is the key thing, over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one, uh, un, one over another ruthlessly. Ruthlessly means that you, they had to set each other free. If it was Israelite became indentured or enslaved to another, they had to be set free every seven years. That was not the case with the other nations. Um, there's a number of reasons for this. There's a theological reason for this, I think. And one of them is that the nation of Israel is to, is to be seen as those who can't be slaves. They can't be slaves because they were slaves in Egypt. In fact, this is one reason why God says, be compassionate to these people because you used to be a slave. He tells them they have to love and care for the slaves because they were slaves, right? So there has to be a humanitarian attitude about it. But the point theologically is you can't be slaves to your fellow Israelites because I have redeemed you and not for bondage or slavery. But yet the economy of the Middle East is, is based upon, in fact, sometimes people wanted to be slaves, right? When they sold all they had and they had no money left, there was no welfare available for them. So they all they could sell was their own service. I will serve you for seven years, 10 years, 30 years, the rest of my life. Um, we, will, we will come and you'll protect us and we will serve you. And this was not necessarily a bad thing. The bad thing was the abuses that were generally associated with it. There, there was like a, a necessity for it. So all that to say, um, there are those who want to say, oh, so there were no problems with the slavery in the Old Testament. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Or those who want to say on the other end, oh, so Mike thinks slavery is good. Mike supports slavery. No, you just you just want to hate me. Go ahead, do what you want to do. No, it's to say this is actually a complicated issue and to to cast it with one color and one, you know, one stroke of paint is to just on either side. Oh, there's no issues here or all there are are horrific issues here. Either one of those, those are just ignorance you know, magnified. What we need to do is look at it honestly, say the Bible um, tried to remove the abuses of slavery in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament continues in that progression to where we have like Philemon. I have a study on Philemon, the last teaching on slavery, thorough teaching on slavery in the Bible, um, where Paul's like, um, he's your brother. And it was just, anyway, it's a really neat, really neat teaching. I hope that helps. If you want it to be like this totally perfect thing, it's not. It's not. Um, God is giving the law of Israel in the uh, uh, who are sinful people in the midst of sinful people. 
and sometimes he's dealing with realities of the time in ways that make those things much better but aren't necessarily ideal and that's that's my understanding of slavery it's not ideal it's way better than it was it, it elevated the, the rights and the safety and the provisions for those people far beyond anything in the time it's better than it was and i don't i don't think anybody could argue against that rationally um but of course the ideal is that we're going to eliminate slavery oh there's one more law i'll tell you before i move on in israel um, because the because chattel slavery was based in, entirely on kidnapping, right? Kidnapping people. Uh, chattel slavery couldn't happen if it wasn't for kidnapping. So not only do you have underground railroad, you have human rights protections, like the death of the, the of the the slave owner if he's if he kills a slave. But you also have um, oh, and the slave goes free if he's greatly harmed. He just goes free. You can't just abuse your slave. They just go free. That's in the law as well. Then you have uh, one more provision, which I just oh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, which was, um, oh yeah, kidnapping. So if a slave is kidnapped, if they're the result of kidnapping, this is intense in the Old Testament. It says that the kidnapper will be put to death and anybody who's, um, con- you know, who's in possession of the person who was kidnapped, they'll also be put to death. This, so let's apply this to modern, or relatively modern, American slavery. That means that the people who are riding the boats you're, you're, you're stealing people from another country. You're bringing them over a boat and then you give them into the hands of some, some cotton farmer or something. That farmer is guilty and will suffer under the Old Testament law, the death penalty. That's, that's how much human rights are elevated in the scripture. So we got to take it all, take it all and not, not just um, try to blackwash it or whitewash it or brownwash it or whatever the terms are. I don't know. Um, the next question is David Forsyth. No. Yes. All right. David Forsyth says, what does it mean for believers to be one in us, the father and the son in the same way that they are in each other? John 17, 21 has me confused. Thanks brother Mike. God bless. This is a great question. Um, and I'll try to give you the best answer I can. John 17, 21. This is Jesus's like, they'll call it his great priestly prayer. They'll often call it that, but this is Jesus's very long prayer right here at the end, right before he's crucified. And he's praying things for us, right? For us, um, for the disciples, but also for all of us. And that's where the shift happens in verse 20. He says, I don't ask for these only, those that were alive at the time, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that that would be us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Um, so I, I, um, I think the oneness has to do with um, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. So there's, there's that going on in, in, in perhaps, perhaps in some ways we're more the glory that God gave him, it's, it has to do with the, um, the earthly life of Jesus as an example for us of being a man in right. And, and I'm going to, people are going to think I'm, I'm tapping into Bethel theology. No, I'm not going to reject everything they say though, because some of it would be accurate, but Jesus was, was a man. He was in right relationship with God. He's also God, the man, in addition to being God and man, he's also the perfect example of a human who is in perfect, intimate relationship with the father. And so in that I'm to try to be that as well. Now, when that comes to like, oh, therefore we can command miracles whenever we want. That's weird. But, um, but that would be the glory I think that he's talking about 
which was in verse 22, the glory that you've given me, right? That, that, that he's, he's come as a man, but who is experiencing perfect relationship with God. There's an element that's there. And that's what he's talking about. It's, it's talking about relationship here. I've given to them. So he cleanses us. And now we become vessels of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and fills us. That's a major theme in John 16, 14, 15, 16. And now in 17, he's talking, I think, about the fuller experience of that, where I relationally am indwelt by the Spirit. That's a new thing for Christians, for Christian believers after the cross. I in them and you in me. So Jesus is in us. And we have a relationship to God through Jesus. Jesus is our mediator. He brings us to God and we experience the internal reality of that through the Holy Spirit. So we have the whole Trinity at work there in our relationship that they may become perfectly one. And then that's not just about our relationship with God, but it's about our relationship with each other. That as I am walking in the spirit, knowing God, I become a brother uh, and, or, or sister or, or, you know, relation to other believers in Christ. And it's our unity that is going to let the world know that that, he, that we're Christians. They'll know you're Christians by your love, right? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. When we love each other because of the indwelling of the Spirit, people see not just a group of people that love one another. They see people whom God has given love for each other. And then it confirms the reality. There's something about the apologetics, because apologetics is like giving an answer or reason for the faith. There's something about the apologetics of a Christian community who truly loves one another that is more powerful than so many different arguments we might offer uh, for God's existence. And, and so the enemy is going to attack this and try to undermine this and try to cause division. We're not ignorant of his devices, right? So we need to be loving and gracious and kind and um, show the love that God has given us in our behavior towards each other. So I, I hope that that helps. Um, what, what I'm suggesting here is when we talk about Okay, Jesus is talking about his glory. He's talking about the oneness he has with the Father. You might be thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is the oneness of the Trinity. And so how am I having the oneness of the Trinity? But I think that we have to take in, in, in mind here, Jesus is a human. It's not just about the Trinity. It's about the humanity of Christ and his perfect relationship with the Father. And he's saying, here are humans. I'm giving them a perfect relationship with you because I've lived perfectly. I've lived unstained. I have lived holy so that I can give them my holiness, my righteousness, and they can have a relationship with you as well. So I don't think it's about the Trinity in the sense that you're thinking, potentially. Um, all right, let's move on here. We have Julie, Julianid Isil. I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong. Um, Julianid Isil, anyway. Hi, Pastor Mike. I've, I've heard my grandma say that sometimes she doesn't pray out loud so that the devil can't hear her because the devil can't know our thoughts. Is there a biblical basis for this? Um, is there a biblical basis for the idea that Satan doesn't know your thoughts? Um, I don't know. I think there's biblical basis to say we don't have confirmation that he does know our thoughts. But we do have Satan interacting with the hearts of people internally. Uh, we talk about the fiery darts of the enemy. I do think that those are ideas and thoughts that come in. That's my impression. It could be other things. It could be inclusively. It could be ideas and thoughts. It could be other kinds of persecutions. We do have Satan putting it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Satan put it in his heart. So he can put stuff in, but it doesn't mean he can read stuff out. My thought is this. If you are directing your prayer, directing your life out of fear for Satan, 
he's already winning. If you won't pray out loud, because Satan might hear you, Satan's already winning. This is hindering your prayers. It's hindering your prayer experience. You're afraid that something bad will result in praying the normal way that scripture has us praying. That's not a healthy thing. That's a fear thing that has to be set aside. God has not given us a spirit of fear. So we should set that aside. That'd be my encouragement there. Um, whether Satan can know your thoughts or not is irrelevant to your prayer. Whether Satan can hear your prayers or not is irrelevant to your prayer. Just all irrelevant. It's all irrelevant. It doesn't matter. We're, we don't fear him. Do you see? We don't fear him. We're standing in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're, we're living in the victory of Christ over Satan. We stand on the side that has already accomplished victory. And we need to, we need to live like that. David Mason has a question. Is God the potter and I'm, if God's the potter and I'm the clay, am I responsible for my own life or not? Is it up to me to make something of myself or is it my job simply to trust and obey God and his will for my life? Well, I, I don't think these things are mutually exclusive. Um, you're like, do I make something of myself or do I simply trust and obey God? Well, why can't you do both? Why can't you make something of yourself as you trust and obey God? I think biblically what we have is diligence and strong effort on our side to serve God powerfully, effectively, take advantage of every opportunity while we trust him with the results. So I'm not trusting in my efforts and trusting in my labors, but I'm engaging in those as a way of being faithful to God and I trust God with the ultimate results. That's what I think. I, I think that there's a tendency sometimes as Christians to be lazy or at least we look lazy because we're like, well, we'll see if the Lord wants to do that or not. And so Jesus has this comment he has in scripture where he says that like the, the sons of the, of this, of this world, the people of the world are, are more shrewd than us sometimes. Like, especially when it comes to money, they're more shrewd because as Christians, you're like thinking, well, God's ultimately in control. So I don't have to worry about like things like profit margins and, and, and really good, careful distribution of my, you know, income into different investments and things like that. And I would just suggest we can worry about all the same stuff, but for different reasons and to different degrees. I, I, I should care about my retirement and if I'm investing well. I should care about if I do the ministry this way, it'll have a bigger reach than if I do it that way, which will have a lesser reach. If I, if I coordinate it better, it will impact more people for the glory of God's kingdom, God willing. So I think it's good to have plans. It's good to be like in a godly ambition, ambitious for serving the Lord. Like my ministry would never exist unless I had spent crazy numbers of hours trying to figure out how to like leverage it online, how to do it well on YouTube. I still study YouTube all the time to try to learn how to better do it and better like my thumbnail this way or that way, or this, there's like a channel trailer. And if I say it this way, how will it help the new viewer first time they're on there to click and connect? No manipulation, just the best use of resources. That's, that's the thing. So yeah. Um, now God's the potter, you're the clay. That in no way means you're not responsible for your own life. That is an abuse of that teaching of scripture because read, just read the rest of the Romans. Read Romans 1 through 3 and ask yourself, are these people responsible for their life? Yeah, like that's clearly a misunderstanding of scripture. You don't have to go far to see that. Yeah. Um, there's my short answer. Agnes Magnuson says, which form does Jesus have in heaven? A human one or a shapeless one? I'm having a hard time picturing him in my prayers. Um, well, my, the good news here is, Anders, is you don't have to picture him in your prayers. Um, that's not a requirement for, for praying, is picturing him. And it seems like the 
the Jews would struggle with that as well because they weren't allowed to use those icons. We spoke earlier about this. There was no icon at the center of the temple was the Ark of the Covenant with the two angels, but then there was nothing in the middle. I'll bet they had a hard time picturing God. And I think that that was intentional. I think that was on purpose. God's like, I don't, I'm bigger than whatever you're picturing. What your picture is too small. So, but, but then there's still an interesting theological question. In what form is Christ right now? Is he in, is he, is the right hand of God in a human body somewhere? Right? A glorified body, right? A, a now glorified body that, that is fit for, fit for heaven. Um, so I guess I would lean towards thinking he is thinking that that, that is the case, that there is some lo- locality where God's, God's, the center of God's presence in reality is, and that, that this is where angels are worshiping him. And this is where Jesus is in, embodied. But there are those who would say he has, and I've heard this before, and I'm, this is, I'm not promoting the view. I just want to share it with you guys. Cause I know you like to be able to be aware of different Christian ways of looking at things. There are those who've said that, um, uh, perhaps it's like he's, um, his body only presses into existence at the occasions when he wants it to. Um, and this is a weird view to me. I'm just sharing it with you because it, it came up, but, and I'm probably sharing it wrong, but, um, oh, how do, how do I, it's kind of like if you're playing a video game and you log in and say it's, you know, your character appears, your avatar appears, and then when you log out, the avatar is not there. You still exist, but the avatar is not there. So there are some that would view Jesus like that. Like his, like he's, he's God almighty. He's omnipresent. He wouldn't cease to exist at any point, but his, the body sort of comes into existence as he chooses. I still feel like that's such a weird view, but it is one I've heard that someone was trying to wrestle with this question. Number 11 from Lior says, how do we know that the long book of Jeremiah, which we use today is the right one instead of Jeremiah in the Septuagint, which is much shorter. Um, so Lior, I don't know the best way to answer this question. Uh, I, I am familiar with the issue. In the Septuagint, we have, I think there's multiple copies of Jeremiah. Am I wrong? I could very well be wrong. Okay. I'm trying to remember. It was a while ago. I looked into this, that there, that one version of Jeremiah in the Septuagint is just missing a large portion of the book of Jeremiah. Um, well, let me say this, this, here's some encouragement to you. The Septuagint is not the original Old Testament, right? It's not. The Septuagint, who like Dr. Peter Williams would say, there is no Septuagint. He has a whole complicated thing on that. Um, but the Septuagint, what most people talk about when they say it, is 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 this Greek translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. So it's possible that the authors of the Septuagint there had just access to a partial book of Jeremiah, and that's what they translated. That's a, a definite possibility. Um, I tend to think that because Jeremiah is... I think sections from the long book are quoted in the New Testament, I think. Um, and because the long book is the, is the one that's been accepted by the Jewish people and Jesus affirmed the canon that they accepted, that that's enough of a reason for me to trust that we have the right thing. There just happens to be a much shorter version in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint has uh, other things as well that we would look at and say, okay, that's probably inaccurate. More, I think that when you see the Septuagint differing from, say, what they call the Masoretic, the, the, the Hebrew, ancient Hebrew we've got. When you see the Septuagint differing from the Masoretic, I think more often than not, they lean towards the Masoretic, not the Septuagint. There are times where the Septuagint takes precedence. That's my impression. I could be wrong. And those are my thoughts. Uh, number 12, Ezelo Minish says, Hey, Mike, love your teaching. Um, thank you, Ezelo. That's encouraging. Uh, can you explain Matthew 25, 14? What are the bags of silver? Are they the same as 1 Corinthians three twelve gold, silver, 
wood hay stubble. Greetings from Germany. All right, so Matthew 25, 14. 25, 14. Listening from Germany. I wonder what time it is there. Probably not a very good time. <laughs> um, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave, this is the kingdom of heaven, is like this, is a parable of Jesus. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went, and basically these guys, they each are, there's a man who's who's like Jesus. He goes on a journey and he entrusts um, his wealth, different amounts of wealth. Talents are just massive amounts of wealth. The talent is a huge number, a huge amount of money. And he gives five to one to different guys. They go off their one is very unfaithful. One is sort of faithful. And the other one is very faithful. And the question is like, Hey, um, is this like first Corinthians three twelve, which talks about how we get, how we get judged. Our Christians, our, our works are judged in the final day. And it speaks, uh, if anyone builds the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. So I would say there's a similar thing here in that there's an accounting being given for the life and the responsibilities you were given. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not using the word silver in the way that Jesus is using the word talents or that sort of silver in the passage that you quoted in Matthew. Um, here's why. The silver is something that was given and entrusted to them, and then they were to be faithful with it and then return it back with interest. So there's only silver. Everyone has silver. Even the unfaithful one, it's just silver. Whereas 1 Corinthians 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 12, it's getting at the idea that you as a Christian, totally different analogy. We don't want to mix analogies. Um, you as a Christian, you are doing work for the Lord in your life, and that work is of different qualities. It could be, it could be gold, silver, or it could be wood, hay, or stubble, stuff that'll be burned up and it'll just fall apart. And so these are, these aren't about what you've received, the talents. This is about the type of the quality of service you're bringing to the Lord in your life. So I would not mix the two just to keep the clarity of the different purposes of those passages. Uh, Simon Botha or Simeon Botha says, hi, Pastor Mike, what are your thoughts on Christian rock and metal? Is it difficult or even impossible to honor God and spread the gospel using genres often expressed, expressing dangerous messages and imagery? I'm open to it. I'm definitely open to it. I, you may not know this. I used to book bands at a Christian coffee shop in Bellflower called Angel City back in the 1990s, just after I graduated high school. And um, we had heavy metal, we had hardcore, we had all kinds of stuff. And so I got to see up close and personal the people in these bands. These were all Christians and the people who would attend these shows. And so I'm going to say this. I'm open to it. I think it can be done, but I think that it very often goes wrong. Um, so here'd be my caution. If you're, if you're a Christian heavy metal person, you really love this sort of thing. Here's my caution to you. I don't think you have to throw out all the music and, and, and stop your pursuits. I don't think that. I think that you need to be very aware that there's a temptation while you're aligning yourself with a genre of music, there's a temptation to align yourself with the ungodly elements in that genre as well. And hardcore, heavy metal, these tend to have very sinful elements that are just stock parts of the genre. And if you as a Christian don't work very hard to keep yourself from absorbing those ungodly elements, then you're going to become a mixed message, right? Where you're preaching Christ, but your character is not giving off the character and the love and the truth of Christ. And, and one way to see this is if your band is mostly about ripping on and criticizing people. 
that's all that's all your songs are about because that fits the genre very well but it doesn't fit the christian message very well there are times to do it right but if your song is about hate those pharisees and the next song you write is about um you're going to hell and the next song is one you write about like um uh flabby pastor and it's about you making fun of a fat pastor or something like you know and like these are the things that you're doing then i'm going to suggest the genre the sin elements in the genre have infested you, not just the sounds that the music makes. Because it, it does, like for instance, you know, Western songs tend to be about certain topics. Heavy metal, hardcore, death metal, all these things, they have they tend to have certain topics they revolve around, certain vibes they're trying to get across. It's part of the genre. And some of those are, are harder for Christians to be involved in. And you need a strong Christian who recognizes those things and is not tempted by them and doesn't care about the glory, but just cares about the mission if they're going to be able to do it well. Graham Weaver says, how do you respond to someone who demands you give a chapter and verse from the Bible to support any claim you make regarding things that tend to be more nuanced or situation specific? I would ask them to give chapter and verse from the Bible to support the claim that you always have to give chapter and verse from the Bible to make any claim regarding things that tend to be nuanced or situation specific. That's what I would say. Um, yeah. Give, give me chapter and verse. This is, I have to give chapter and verse every time. I, you know, if I'm going to say that the Bible teaches this, I better be able to support it with biblical teaching, with actually referencing chapter and verse. You may or may not on the spot be able to remember all the verses that you use to come to that opinion. Okay, well, that's just a test of your memory recall. That's not a test of your doctrine. So I don't want to be rude to people in that sense. But yeah, that's an overreaction. You have to give chapter and verse every time, every time, chapter and verse. Like every time I say something, I have to be like Mark 12, verse 3. All right, and John 17, 1. And, and this is why I did that, Revelation 4, 5. Like, I'm not, no one's going to do that. Um, it just becomes a way of, of controlling people, right? I can reject everything everyone says because they don't pass my test of quoting chapter and verse every five seconds instead of having to think through what they're saying. That's what it looks like to me. Uh, Graham Weaver has a question. Nope, I already, already answered yours. Kate, question 15. Kate says, is it biblical to anoint your home with oil that you've prayed over to combat spiritual warfare? Is it instructed in the Bible? I'm going to break this down into a couple of questions. Does the Bible instruct us to anoint our home with oil? Does it give an example of anointing items and objects with oil as a New Testament believer? I don't think so. Um, are there Old Testament examples of using oil as, you know, in, in, in anointing various things? Um, the high priest poured over him, that kind of thing, touching his ear and his, his, I would think it was his left ear and his left thumb and his left toe, like that kind of thing. Yeah. There was, there was anointing that was given, you know, to objects and stuff. Um, those objects were being cleansed for temple type purposes and that had to do with the presence of God. You're the, you're the, you're where the presence of God is now. So I don't know how well that translates over in the new Testament. The one time we're told to use oil is on people when we're praying for the, for the sick in James chapter five, anoint them with oil, pray for them. And so there's that, there's that. Okay. So is it taught? Uh, no, <clears throat> is it allowable? I, I would I would allow it. I, if someone tried to turn it into a big thing, like where they go, what you need is I have to come to your house and I'll be the one to anoint it. And they start turning into like this this sort of like power grab, like there's the Christian who can anoint your home and things like that. I think that's a little weird. But I don't see a problem with it. Like if just consider it an extra biblical tradition, you're just, I just feel like it. You know, oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go ahead and put oil on my home. I'm going to pray, you know, use it as like an opportunity to have faith. Um, I think that's fine. I think it's okay if you want to do that. I just wouldn't turn it into a, this is how Christians do it. Um, now I'm going to run around and tell everybody, oh, you have to use oil. 
when I used oils when when things were changed in my home, I think that turning it into a formula is the, is the part I would avoid. So can you do it? Yes. Is it required or taught? No. Um, number 16, uh, Lucy Q says, I was baptized as an infant in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Finland, but I got saved a little over a year ago. Should I get baptized again? Um, I would. And the, the short answer, because we're getting so long on time, short answer is I would because I think that I would want to be baptized of my own free will. I think that's a very strong element. Uh, baptism is a ratification of a decision to follow Christ. And they baptize you with, when you never had that opportunity to make that choice. So I would suggest that it's appropriate for you to be baptized again. I don't think you have to to be saved or something like that. I'm just saying I think it's appropriate and I think it's fine. Kate, that, that's my two cents on the topic. Um, but I would be cautious about how you getting baptized again might affect your loved ones. And if it's really going to bother them, you may or may not, you may do it publicly. You might just talk to them about it and say like, here's how I'm feeling about this. I got some advice from a pastor. Here's what he thought. Um, and you may, you may look at that. Um, there's a, a recognized need for this in circles where they baptize infants. They recognize that there's like this sense that people constantly have like, but wait, but I didn't make a choice. I didn't make a choice. So they'll have things like confirmation and they add extra things that aren't, you know, biblically taught because they're trying to like fit that need for that moment. Where someone's like, this is me, this is my choice, I'm following Christ. I've heard the gospel, but now I've responded. I think that the baptism is that thing. And so, maybe it's my tradition, but I would recommend that you do consider that. Felicia Clawan um, says, Hosea 8.4 verses Romans 13.1. My county hasn't allowed more than two households together in months I wasn't, I want to be subject, but I wouldn't consider this a godly law as he taught hospitality thoughts. Thanks, Mike. Oh, this is a tough one. So those verses, if you guys don't know, Romans 13, one is about submission to government. Um, let me look at Hosea eight, four. Okay. It's about illegitimate government. Uh, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not with their silver and gold. They made idols for their own destruction. Uh, so they, they, they were lifting up Kings themselves, but not through God. Um, can I say this, that this is not it, to my knowledge, Jose eight, four is not a formula for rebellion. It's just a rejection of the way they're running their leadership. So pardon me. So if, if America starts selecting ungodly leadership, which we have done on and off, um, maybe more on than off <laughs> in our history, you could say we're making kings, but not through him. We're not. We're not doing it in godly ways. We're, but they're still our king. We're still to submit. Like Caesar was an ungodly king in the first century. Romans thirteen one still applied to to him, right? Um, not Romans sixteen. What did I? I typed Romans one hundred thirty one, and it took me to the closest possible passage. Um, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. They're just governing authorities. It doesn't say like godly governing authorities or something like that. So I'm just supposed to be subject. Um, but the tough part about this is, is this, like as a Christian, um, I do have a command to gather together on a regular basis. Like this is in Hebrews, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. Don't stop. Don't stop gathering as Christians. That would seem like an easy, easy, easy. Um, oh, so I rebel against government the moment they tell me not to gather on Sundays as a church. And I think that there could be more layers of wisdom to consider here. For instance, can we still gather in a smaller community? 
Can we gather in home churches? Can we gather outside? Can, you know, and maybe the answers to these things are no. Maybe they're yes. The thing is, you have to understand there's people in Southern California, or we have nice weather. There's people in Michigan where it's like minus 30 degrees or 300 degrees or whatever. It's, it's, you're frozen. It's frozen. It's like you have an idea and it freezes in your head before you can figure out what you were thinking. And so there's places where it's like that and you obviously can't meet outside. It's just not even possible. Um, how long is one to miss Sunday service or miss a gathering, whether it's Saturday, Sunday, whatever, you know, Tuesday nights, whenever you get together as believers to, to worship and fellowship and be in the word, how long do you miss it before you violated the Hebrews command? I don't really know the clear answers to these questions because perhaps those answers look different in different communities, like legitimately. Um, but it does feel like we're coming close to where if, if a Christian tells me, Mike, I feel like I need to gather, like this is a biblical command and the government's telling me I can't. And in all good conscience, I think I have to rebel. I'm not going to take up arms against the government. That's not the kind of rebellion I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about, I'm going to do the thing they're telling me not to do because I think God wants me to do it. I'm going to honor that person's conscience to say, I respect you. God give you wisdom. And God show me if, if, if I need to make a choice like that too. And I think we should give each other a little bit of space because the issue is, to some it's very black and white. To others, it's very black and white on the other side. And to me, I feel like it's kind of complicated. And for those who think it's a little complicated, we 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 would look and say, I can see why you're feeling that way. I can see why you're feeling that way. I almost feel like it's a Romans 14 situation sometimes where I go, let me, let me encourage you guys to follow your conscience and let's watch out for causing division in the body on the topic, right? Any church that's not gathering on Sunday and rebellion to their local governments is apostate. Like, dude... You are off your rocker if you think that's the case. Like, this is so wacky and wrong. And what it is, is it's I'm so ingrained in my in my own experience, in my own views here, that I'm not able to say the, see the difference between how I'm trying to apply the Bible and what it's actually saying clearly. It's a tough thing. Um, so, yeah, I, um, I don't think it's a, a, a good thing that we're unable to gather in any form. I think many, many countries are overreaching. That just seems obvious to me. I could be wrong, guys. This is my private opinion here. It does look that way. And so for me, if in a country someone goes, well, we're secretly meeting in our home against government rules, or we're gathering as our church and openly, even though we might get arrested, I would just say, well, I support you. And someone else who says, oh, I just don't think it's safe. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm sheltering in place kind of sense. I'm, uh, I'm watching the... Uh, um, the stuff online, I'm still interacting with believers wherever I can, but I'm just kind of staying isolated for my own reasons here. Then I go, I support you. I encourage you. God bless you. That's where I'm at right now. I'm, I, I don't have a clear tipping point at this moment. Those are my thoughts. I wish I had better clarity. I really, truly wish I had better clarity for you guys on the topic. All right. Number 18, Summer Monsoon. Summer Monsoon. Uh, says, hi, Mike, I've heard Mormons equate Paul's conversion experience with Joseph Smith's in order to justify Mormonism. From an apologetic standpoint, why is Paul's conversion story credible? Thank you. Um, Paul's conversion story was true. <laughs> That's one thing. No, but why is it credible? Um, Paul did something Joseph Smith never did. Paul went to the actual apostles and they ratified him. We have Peter who actually says that what, what Paul writes is scripture. Like it, Peter actually wrote that what Paul wrote is scripture. He calls it scripture. This is huge, right? Um, yeah, so we have the ratification of Paul by the other apostles. In Galatians 2, he even mentions this, that he went to the apostles to make sure that what he was teaching was solid and was the same thing that they were teaching to make sure he hadn't run in vain. And when he gets there, they give him the, the quote, right hand of fellowship, and they recognize that God has called him to the Gentiles, right? So God has called him specifically to it. In Acts 
he also visits them and they recognize that God has called him and they send him out with blessings. So what Joseph Smith didn't have was an apostolic affirmation of his identity. There's other problems too. One of the ways that Paul was proving he was legitimate and genuine is when he found out that the gospel he preached was the same as the gospel they preached. This is huge. Please don't miss this point. His gospel was the same as their gospel. Joseph Smith teaches a different gospel, like a very clearly different gospel. Uh, the nature of God is different. The nature of salvation is different. The purpose of salvation, the destiny of salvation, the person of Christ, all these things are different in Mormonism, right? So God wasn't always God and he had other gods before him, right? Unlike what scripture says. And they're going to reinterpret those passages, but that would be what the apostles believed. Um, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. Okay, they would agree with that. But who is Jesus exactly? He's our older brother. He's not the he's not God with us, the Lord of all creation. He's one who becomes God over time. He's not God of God from all time. So there's like all these important elements. Um, so yeah, all Joseph Smith is saying the connection. How is Joseph Smith like Paul? They both claimed they encountered Jesus. Okay, but that's not Paul's only credential. That's not at all his only credential. And Joseph Smith is uh, not legitimate. Not, he doesn't pass any of the tests. Do we have apostolic confirmation of him? No. Nor could we, because they're all gone. Do we have a consistent message? No. No, we don't. And if you look up, if you guys aren't sure, look up the King Follett sermon from Joseph Smith and read it. This is Joseph Smith's teaching where he's like, I'm going to tell you stuff that nobody knows before. And he just tells you blatantly unbiblical things. Like that um, we all have to become like God and um, we're going to become gods and like things like that that are just definitely not what the early church taught. Um, next question is from 19, number 19, giant mushroom tree says, can the offended spouse remarry after trying to reconcile or is remarriage only available for the offended Oh, offending spouse? Okay. So if I, so let's say that I had, uh, God forbid, uh, that I had cheated on my wife and that, um, later I try to reconcile with her, but that reconciliation is not happening for whatever reason. Uh, and she's divorced me understandably and, and justifiably. Um, he says, is remarriage only available for her, the offended? Uh, what if the offense is sexually immoral to some, but not to others? Um, I don't know how I can comment on the last question because it's too vague. Um, so I feel like I'm answering a specific issue, but I, I can't I can't give you an answer on such a vague thing. What if the offense is immoral to some people? But the question is, is it immoral? That's the question you have to ask. And I don't know what offense you're referring to. But is remarriage only available for the offended? Um, I think that the offended has immediate... Uh, course to to remarry they can do that when i say offended i mean legitimate cause for divorce not just i'm offended at my spouse i'm gonna go get married to somebody else and i have my long teaching on this topic you guys probably are familiar with so the offendee the one who has caused the offense after they've been divorced i think that they're still bound to try to reconcile try to reconcile try to reconcile i think that when it's clear that that person has ultimately rejected you uh, when they reject any sort of attempts at uh, involvement of even church leadership to try to see reconciliation happening, especially if they marry someone else. That's a clear thing. They've married someone else. Okay, now now you're free. Okay, but you still have to deal with all your heart issues. But what if like they're just making it hard? They're just making me mad. I just can't stand them. I just want to give up trying to reconcile. I, I would be very, very slow to encourage someone on that. I would encourage them to keep pressing on. And their frustration may be evidence of bitterness that remains when all that frustration is gone. That is an amazingly godly attitude. And then you might see clearly. So I, I apologize if I can't answer that question better, but there's my thoughts. John Dutton, here's our, our, uh, our last one. John Dutton says, is imputed righteousness biblical? 
I find evangelical Christians will say the blood covers my sins, but the Bible says we have to turn from wickedness. Okay, so John, I think that you're you're perhaps uh, experiencing a, a disconnect between the what imputation teaches and what maybe you think it's teaching. So when we say that we're Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, which I do think is very biblical, and I have teaching on that in the Romans series, in my Romans series, you could look up. Um, I do think it's very, it's, it's God's righteousness is given to me as in I am righteous, but not by virtue of my behavior, by virtue of his righteousness being given to me. I'm clothed in his righteousness, so to speak. So this is how I'm holy and without blame before him in love. But that doesn't mean I'm not also counseled to put off anger, bitterness, wrath, malice. Just because those things aren't going to be the things that get me into heaven doesn't mean that there are things that are okay to do. Right? Like, for instance, my wife not, might not divorce me if I call her names. That doesn't mean it's okay to call her names. Right? It, if, if calling names isn't cause for divorce, then it must be okay to call people names. Like, if, if me having sin doesn't mean I'm unsaved, then it must be okay to have sin. Well, no, no, because we care more, more than just about our actual bare salvation. We care about our relationship with God. We love God. We're driven by compassion and desire to, to know him and serve him and care about him. We're um, stirred by the Holy Spirit and conviction of sin. These are all motives that are still in place. And the commands to live a holy life don't change at all, even if the consequences of failing aren't immediate like damnation. So... So that might be kind of a straw man of imputation as if imputed righteousness means you can just go and sin all you want and it doesn't matter. I think those like me who believe in imputation would say that if someone's living a great sinful life, like a very outwardly openly sinful life, that I would just question whether they even have the righteousness of Christ. Not because um, God's righteousness makes you act righteous, but because a relationship with God shows evidence in a person's life. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You really believe the things you say you believe. There's some fruit there. And so for those... There's those who I put a question mark over. I go, their life is so inconsistent with their claims that I don't know if those claims are true. And that would be um, something I'm very open to being able to say. All right, all right. We do have a bonus question. I, I see a bonus question Sarah sent me. I'll go ahead and take a look at it and we'll go through here. Uh, also, um, Spazzy Jazzy, who, who I called a guy and then who changed her name to Mrs. Spazzy Jazzy so I would know it was a girl. And I thought, oh, this is Spazzy Jazzy's wife who finally changed her name again on YouTube to Spazzy Jazzy has been a girl the entire time Mike has said hi. And I just want to say hi, Spazzy Jazzy. Um, you are a woman and now I know. <laughs> and now everybody knows. All right, so Jazzy was short for Jasmine as we all have now discovered. So now we know, we, we'll, get you, we'll get you right. Um, all right, last question, bonus question, number 21. If you're willing, from Constance, it says, Hi, Pastor Mike. Can you please give your thoughts on the New Century Version, the Amplified Version, and the Contemporary English Version of the Bible? I heard your video on translations, but these were not mentioned. I use the ESV and NLT mainly, but like to use others from time to time. Thanks for your great ministry, Constance in Australia. Okay, I have only looked at the, the New Century Version and the Contemporary English Version, the CEV. I've only looked at those like this much, this much. So sort of you're asking me to weigh in like I'm going to give you an opinion of a whole translation when I've only really looked into them that tiny bit. Like a, very rarely I looked at a verse, just one verse in that version. So I'm just not equipped to tell you anything about them. That's partly why I didn't comment on them in my big video. I stuck to versions that I thought were more um, prevalent and more mainstream mostly. Um, I had different reasons why I picked ones that I picked. So I just, I'm afraid to say much about the New Century or the Contemporary English version. Um 
I'm just going to have to not. But the Amplified version I can talk about. So the Amplified Bible is 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 effectively um, longer, a lot longer than what you're used to. When you read the Amplified Bible, what they're doing is they're, they kind of want to leave no stone unturned. So let's say you're looking at a passage and that word, uh, or sorry, this um, this phrase, it it could be translated this way. It could be translated that way. The Amplified Bible translates it both ways and puts them both in the text. So you've got double and triple translation going on on, as a, on a regular basis in the text. I think most people just open it and start reading and they don't know what they're reading. They don't know about this. If you're informed and you know that you're reading different possible translations that can't all be true at the same time, if you're reading different possible translations, it could be like a, a, a very um, educational like study tool. Oh, there's one way. Oh, there's another way. Which way's right? Well, they're probably not all right, right? They're not all true. So Amplified's like pull out every possible meaning and put it all in the text. That's my understanding of the Amplified Bible. I would not recommend Christians read it as a Bible, but they might reference it as a secondary or ter probably tertiary source, right? Where you're reading and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure how to understand that. I wonder how the Amplified Bible's translated that. Oh, here's a couple options. Not necessarily the perfect way to do it. Um, that's what... I would look at that Bible for it's don't think of it as a Bible version translation. Think of it as a tool, a tool that offers very expansive translations. And if you can view it that way, then it can be very useful for you. If you view it as a normal Bible, you're going to be, um, you're going to have problems. Basically, we've got two kinds of Bibles out there nowadays. We have Bibles that are basically trying to tell you, this is what it says in the original. Now there are some are more word for word, some are more thought for thought. Both of those I think are good and valuable in different ways. Um, I tend to lean more word for word, but I also realize that there's such usability in a more thought for thought. Um, and you don't, anyway, there's a lot of value there. And actually I think thought for thought, even things like the NIV can be very beneficial. So um, then there's a whole nother kind of translation or Bible version, which would be like the message, the amplified Bible, the new, the new living translation, where they're going to take a lot more liberties and you can't read these like it's just giving you the text. There's a lot more humanity involved in getting from the original language to what you're reading. And so there's a whole category of translations like that. And if you're not aware, if you read one of these thinking they're one of these, now you're going to have problems. And that's my fear is that typical Christians and, you know, they open up the message. They're not reading it like it's a paraphrase. They're reading it like it's a translation. I just feel like they do it all the time. Am I wrong? I mean, what do you guys think about this? If when you're younger, you first found the message, you start reading it. Are you really aware that there's such a thing as a more verse by verse uh, or sorry, more word for word or even thought for thought translation versus like a paraphrase, an expansive paraphrase like the message? Or are you just reading the message thinking, oh, here's a, here's another translation. Um, I know that's what I did. And that's my problem with those. All the paraphrases, all of them have that problem is that people just read them like they're verse or word for word or more faithful, like thought for thought translations. And they're often, that's not what they are. And if you don't know it, it's problems. All right. Um, that's about all I got for you guys today. We will be back. Check this out. I'm gonna give you some announcements real quick. This, um, this Monday, we're continuing the Mark series. I'm going to be starting into Mark 13. That's the plan anyways. Uh, there's a chance that I'll have to delay that for a week. I'll let you know when I know. But also this Tuesday, I am starting to release one video every single day for like, I think, 18 days. And this, These are short videos. They're clips from an interview I did with Elisa Childers where we answered 
progressive Christian memes, like 23 different memes. And I've cut these into, into individual videos, sometimes two or three memes in one video. But I've cut them into short videos. And I'm going to upload them uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all every day for 18 days. You're going to have a new short video. It's kind of an experiment. I don't know if this is going to do well on the on my online on my channel or not. I don't know how it lands when I put a ton of videos out in a short period of time. I'm very curious to see that. But I'll say this. The content, I think, is very important. Progressive Christian claims are very destructive to people's faith. They undermine people's trust in the Word of God, and they do it often in the name of Christ. It's very sad, and I hope that it will have a big and positive impact in people's lives. So that's about all I got for you. Um, I'm going to put, uh, I'll put, actually, I'll put it right here. I'll put a link, once I'm able to, to my slavery um, study that I did a verse by verse teaching on all the different topics of slavery, more expansive than what I shared today. And I think that you guys will find that very interesting. So if you want to know more, there's going to be a link up there as soon as I can get it. All right. God bless.